I was overwhelmed yesterday by the depth of insight uh, that God has uh, given uh, to Rick. And I want to encourage you guys this morning. We're, we're about to, to learn something fresh about our God. And I believe that God will, will use him this morning. So let me read this. I believe it brings honour. Rick's academic experience has included work as an instructor at Gordon-Conwell in Boston, Wycliffe Hall, Oxford, La Trobe University, Melbourne, and the Bible College of Victoria, Melbourne. Rick's other diverse experience includes training as an aeronautical engineer and working for a number of years at IBM in a large retail systems engineering. He has undertaken degrees in philosophy, art, history, sociology, before eventually studying theology at Boston and Cambridge. Rick and his wife, Katie, thank you so much for being here. Well, she's over there. I just saw her there with Mel, thinking, no, that's not absolutely. I nodded and then I was like, I know, but that's great. Greg, you got, no, I'm not going there, not going there. Not going there. You're going to have to fix that up now, Rick. But uh, I noticed that you're over there. Sorry, Katie. Uh, In addition to that, these guys love sailing. They enjoy movies, good restaurants, music, reading, and going on long walks. Almost sounds like a dating website now, doesn't it? (laughs) But would you please uh, give great honour to Rick Watts as he comes this morning. I'm using this. You are incorrigible. (laughs) Great. Well, it's a real pleasure to be here. We talk about being manly. I'm related to the manly breeds over here, uh, to Charles and to Broman. And Broman might always remind you that I am her younger brother. And apparently thus and always it shall be. So welcome. Good to have you. So uh, we need to get cracking this morning. It's great to be here, but we don't have time to linger around. I need to slow down because I often speak too quickly if there's too much to say. Uh, I don't know about you, but if you look around, you're probably aware that our culture is changing and that these days it's probably not that popular to be a Christian. Growing antagonism, you know the reasons why. And it's easy for us to be confused, I think, maybe even to lose heart and to start to withdraw, just keep away from our culture. And I want to encourage you, whatever you do, don't. Now, this is going to sound utterly bizarre and strange, but uh, I do have to say this. The 21st century is the most Christian the world has ever seen. And uh, we don't have time to talk about it now, but if that sounds odd, can I just gently say you probably don't know what it means to be a Christian. Sorry, that's very bold and blunt, isn't it? But 15 years ago, I was in Beijing at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. It's the pinnacle of humanities in China and there were four of us invited to come and give lectures and they wanted us to lecture on Christianity. This is Marxist China, the highest level of humanity studies. It surprised me as much as I'm sure it surprised you and a long story short the reason was they're convinced that the Bible is what gave rise to modernity and they're right actually. The foundations of our world where change is a good thing where you learn about the truth, not by philosophy, but by testing and observation, where cities are dynamic. So just because you're born in a working class family doesn't mean you can't actually move higher up and become something else, where everyone is meant to be treated with dignity, where words like compassion and love actually have value, right? All of these things, 
All of them, without exception, are uniquely Christian. They're uniquely Christian. You wouldn't have found this in the ancient world. So when you're singing this morning about praising Jesus, you need to know what you're praising him for. He actually gave us this world in which we live. You wouldn't have had Apple Corporation. And I know some of you are IBM people. That's what we're praying for. You're still in the dark there. But I used to work for IBM and now I use Mac. So there you go. But I'm not here to preach the gospel of Apple. Uh, it won't give you eternal life and Jesus will. All of these things are uniquely Christian emphases. Now, what that means is compared to the early Christians, we're going to talk about Paul in just a moment, but compared to them, the gospel has already won. You got that? Because their worldview had none of this, and it's because of the gospel of Jesus that our world assumes all of these things. Our neighbours benefit enormously from living in an essentially Christian world, even if they don't know the Jesus who gave it to them. Right? Now, that's for another time. I think some of you are already thinking, what's this guy been smoking or drinking or something like <laughs> But I just have to tell you that's the case. It's not my concern this morning. I'd rather talk about this guy, just to make sure that slide comes through. Yeah, there we go, good. Central to all of this is a chap called Paul. And uh, you, know, you might know him for talking about justification by faith and preaching the gospel. But the fact is, in terms of just intellectual history, that Paul unleashed what I think is arguably the most amazing revolution in all of human thinking that the world has ever seen and it's resulted in an explosion of creativity that's why I've got Paul and the challenger on the same slide because without him you wouldn't have had this and you're thinking how in the world can that happen well that might be a topic for another time and by the way we have no idea where this is going to end it could be starships on the shores of Sagittarius we just don't know it's unbelievable what this has unleashed but my concern this morning is what is central to Paul or who is central to Paul and that is the correct answer to every Sunday school question? Jesus, Jesus right? Absolutely central to Paul and that's what I'd like to talk about today. I want to talk about what it was about Jesus that transformed Paul and what made Jesus so central to his life. Paul was Jesus obsessed and I want to talk about that because I want you to become Jesus obsessed. Yes to really appreciate how amazing he is. Now, one of the things we have to say, I'm going to be looking at uh, Philippians. Is it still working there? Someone might have to press the button. We're just not actually working unless I go over here. Still not working. Would you mind pressing your button? Thank you very much. Well done, you. Handsome up the back. Round of applause. Well done. Thank you, sir. <laughs> totally embarrassed, right? Silly me. Now, when he's writing Philippians, you understand he's not writing to Jews. He's writing to ex-Roman army guys. These are seriously heavy dudes. It's possible they've spent 20 years in the Roman legions on the vicious European front. And uh, to use the terminology, it's nasty in close wet work. And the Romans are famous for using these short stabbing swords that they actually got from the Spanish. I once talked about this in a church in England and one of the pastors was ex-French foreign legion. He knew about this. He was one of the guys who would go in and do this you know, knife work, etc. And it was just amazing to watch him sitting there with tears running down his cheeks because he too had met this Jesus that changed his life. And these are the people to whom Paul's writing. So you've seen Gladiator? These are the kinds of guys that Philippians has written to. Next slide, please. Okay. Now, I'm just going to read through this text quickly 
That's right, press the button. Well done, excellent. Now, can you see that or is that too small? Maybe you've all memorized this, which would be wonderful, and no doubt in Greek, which would be even better. So Paul says, beware of the dogs. That's a nice, polite thing to say in church, isn't it? Beware of the evil workers. Beware of those who mutilate the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we won't go into detail on that, who worship in the spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Now by flesh, Paul means my status and my achievements. So status is what you're born with. Achievements are what you yourself do to earn standing in people's eyes. Even though he says, I too have reason for confidence in all that. If anyone else has reason for confidence or to be confident in human status and achievement, I have more. Now he's writing to Roman soldiers, or probably maybe barbarians who are working with the Roman army. Listen to what he says here. Circumcised on the eighth day. A member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, what Roman soldier would give a rip about that? Seriously, we'll have to talk about that. What would they even care? <laughs> Who cares about the Jews? What's this got to do with anything? Next slide. And then what does he go on to say? But whatever gains I had... These I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I regard them as so much trash in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a friendship with God, that's what righteousness means, of my own, that comes from the law, that is from doing what God asked me to do, but one that comes through trusting Jesus. A friendship that comes from God, that's based on trust. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. If somehow I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Next slide. Now, some years ago, I was listening to the BBC. They have a wonderful podcast called In Our Time and all kinds of interesting sessions on history, philosophy, literature, religion. And uh, they get three professors from the cream of English universities to talk about this topic. And on this particular day, they were discussing Paul. So I'm driving along, what are they going to do with Paul? Uh, who, by the way, I should say, is making a comeback, particularly in French philosophical schools, because they recognised how much Paul changed the ancient world. Right? You know, so as you expect, you're going to talk about Paul, you start with the Damascus Road. And I'm waiting to see what these guys will say. And it, the professor of philosophy begins, and he says, well, you know, back in the 18th and 19th centuries, people used to say that Paul had a breakdown, right? or maybe he had some kind of mental illness, hallucination, and then this chap said, along with the other two, all three agreed, oh no, we don't accept those answers. Uh, you simply have to accept that something like the Damascus Road had to happen. I mean, this is the BBC. This is the world's most respected news agency. And these three professors are saying, yeah, yeah, this, something like this must have happened. Because you can't explain Paul apart from it. Have you thought about that? I mean, do you, when you read this story about the Damascus Road, do you really believe it actually happened to him? 
Because as Christians, we can read these texts and a little bit like the Lord of the Rings, right? We just kind of read, it's a nice little story, but, the, but this actually happened? That if you were there, you would have seen it all? It's worth thinking about that, I think. And I want to suggest that we won't really get Paul in his understanding of Jesus until we get the Damascus Road. So, next slide. This morning, I want to talk about four things in the time that remains to us, just quickly. We want to talk, first of all, about Paul before this moment. We'll spend a bit of time there because we don't, unless you pay a bit of attention, you won't pick this up, but it's absolutely essential to know where Paul was coming from to make sense of what happened to him on the road. That's the second thing we'll look at, unpack some of those details. And that will then help us understand the text we just read. That's the third thing. And then the fourth point, I want to say, what does this mean for us? Okay. I keep saying, okay, but I've got the microphone and I suppose we're just going to do it anyway. Well, so a couple of things. Next slide. Who was Paul? Next slide. A lot of these going on, I'm afraid. Now, to be honest, uh, some of us are not quite sure what we think about Paul. Next one. And what is it we're not sure about? Well, we think he doesn't like women. Remember that famous text in First Timothy? Uh, First Timothy uh, I don't want a woman to teach. Ever heard that one? I think that's just one of the most disastrously misunderstood texts in the New Testament. In fact, I want to say, next one, that no other voice in the ancient world is as pro-women as Paul. He is so much on the side of women. Now, the reason why you get some of these texts is precisely because he gives them unparalleled authority and freedom to do things they were never able to do before. And like all of us, when we get freedom, we sometimes wobble a bit. Right? So those texts are actually about dealing with wobbling. They're not actually meant to stop women from having major roles in the church. And can I say, uh, you know, the early Pentecostal movement began with a lot of women doing things. Not so much today. What's happened? What's happened in our leadership, folks, that is primarily a male thing? I don't think it's the work of the Holy Spirit. I think it's kind of this male culture stuff where we're the guys who've got it all together, right? And actually, no, women are also made in God's image. Next slide. Now, some people get a bit frustrated with Paul because I think he's a bit arrogant and cranky. I won't ask for a show of hands. (laughs) You know, some people I've met like, yeah, he's so opinionated. Well, I read a book recently by two Jewish guys, two Israelis, Danny Kahneman and uh, Amos Tversky, and they're writing about decision-making. And both of them got involved in major North American universities, mostly in California. And they were talking about in California, everyone says, well, yeah, I'm entitled to my opinion. And they said, well, that might be California. That's not Israel. Uh, Actually, uh, in Israel... If your opinion is ill-informed nonsense, they'll tell you, even if you're the Prime Minister. (laughs) uh, I like that, actually. Uh, I find that rather attractive. So Paul has strong opinions at times. He's direct, but it's because he knows what he's talking about. I happen to love it. The second thing you see about Paul is he's often up to his eyeballs in a serious bun fight, defending the gospel in his congregations against all kinds of scallywags and 'er ne'er-do-wells and kind of religious prats. That's a technical term, okay? He's really serious about caring for people. That's why he comes across this way. But what you have to realize, next one, is that Paul is in fact, uh, keep going, next one, is an exceptional human being. You have to be to have 40 co-workers. Maybe you didn't realize that. He's got 40 people who work with him. That's saying something. And then you only have to read 
the personal material in 2 Corinthians or 2 Timothy or even this letter to see what an amazing human being he is. He weeps, he bleeds, he cares. There's no pretense. He will happily look like a fool in the eyes of those who think they matter if it brings life to other people. You can't help but love a guy like this. And the second point to be made is, we've got this sorted out there, haven't we now? It's great, okay. And you probably will never hear this in school, but he's probably one of the most influential figures in world history because of what he unleashes through the gospel. Now, of first importance, thank you, of first importance about Paul, a couple of things I need to say are his names. Now, when I was growing up, Saul was when he was an unbeliever and Paul is his name when he's a believer. Nice try, but no cigar, if you have cigars here, right? Or whatever it is your preference is. um, Saul is just his Jewish name and Paulos is his Greek name. So if he's in Jerusalem, they call him Saul and when he's in Athens, you call him Paul, a bit like John Mark. John's the Jewish name, Mark's the Greek name. They're living in this bicultural world. Now, why is that important? Next, it's because Paul actually lives in two worlds. And that's absolutely critical. If you read the New Testament, who are the people through whom the gospel takes off? They're the people with feet in two cultures. Now, I remember growing up in the AOG, as it used to be called, and uh, the Beatles were all around, but we were listening to the Blue Ridge Boys Quartet. (laughs) Now, you know, I get the fact that there's a lot of junky stuff out there and you don't want to get infected by it. But we became such a cultural enclave, we didn't know how to talk to non-Christians about Jesus. So I just want to say, and you know, the younger people here can just kind of close their ears for the time, but you know what? You want to watch for the young people who are crossing the boundaries because they're going to be your best evangelists. Right? Don't try and make them conform to a narrow Christianity that's about as ineffective as what that used to be. You need people who can cross boundaries, who love Jesus, but at the same time know how to talk to their culture. That's what you really need, right? And that's what Paul does. So next one. This is his great thing. He knows the Greek world. And here's a map. Have a look at that. Thank you. He lived in a place called Tarsus, uh, east coast, and that's right in the kind of the heartland moving from the east to the west. So he knows the eastern part of the world. He knows the western part of the world. It's a leading city in the empire. So unlike Jesus, who spends most of his time in the countryside, Paul's an urban guy. He knows about city life. So you're much closer to Paul than you would be to Jesus, actually, in terms of your cultural background. He's a Roman citizen, and that counts for something. I can kind of flip out that passport, and it opens all kinds of doors. That's one of the reasons he can talk to these ex-Roman soldiers, because he's a citizen of that empire. His family is pretty well-to-do, apparently. Apparently, they're friends of the, the best families or the highest families in Asia Minor. Not Jesus. Jesus' dad is kind of a working class guy. That's not Paul's family. He's got all kinds of connections. He knows Greek customs. He knows their philosophy. Read Acts 17. He knows that stuff and how to engage with it. So can I just say, you know, you're going to have a hard time talking about culture if you don't know it. It's really important to know where people are coming from and listen so that when they ask questions, you can engage. Paul does that. In fact, when he quotes the scriptures are often the Greek version, not the Hebrew version that he's working with. So the point is, Paul knows all about the difficulties involved in learning to be God's people in a pagan world. 
He understands that. He grew up in it. Try to be Jewish in a world that was, had really wanted nothing to do with folks who were Jewish. So he gets this. That's why he's really worth reading as he helps people understand what it means to look like Jesus in a culture back then that didn't really understand what was going on. However, having said that, thank you, the thing that divines Paul is his Jewishness. And that's what we've just read. He's writing to these Roman soldiers, right? And he says, look at me. Tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the earth. This is all the Jewish stuff, okay? Very, very powerful. Now, you might think, why does that matter? Why would anyone care about Jewishness? Well, the answer is, there's only one true God and everything else is vaporware, smoke and mirrors, right? If you care about reality, then you want to know about the one people who know what the one true God is because nothing else is going to help you. And here's Paul. He's talking to these Roman soldiers in terms of Israel's narrative. Why? Because it's the only one that tells you about who God is and therefore who the world really is. Now, of course, they don't know that, yet we do because our modern world has grown out of this renewed vision of what it means to be human and what the world really is. He's on the other side of that. He's just beginning. We're actually benefiting from all that work. So... He's not only been there or born there, done that, and he didn't just buy one, but he bought all the T-shirts. So this guy is really in the running. Now, the other thing to note, next one, is that he actually kept the law blamelessly. And notice he's looking back as a Christian and he says this. Now, that might surprise some of us because some of us think, well, no one can keep the law. That's not Paul. But what about Isaiah? Or we like sheep have gone astray. But that's Isaiah, 800 years beforehand. That's not Paul. Can't just pick that up and drop it on him. He actually says this in Philippians. As a Christian, I kept the law blamelessly. Now, what's important about that? The important thing is here is that Paul does not come to Jesus from a guilty conscience. He's not coming to Jesus to have his sins forgiven. He's not coming to Jesus to have his messy life put together. No, he's not doing any of that. Now, that might shock some of us, but it's really important to getting what makes Paul tick. What else can we say about Paul? He actually trained under Gamaliel, who's one of the great Jewish scholars of the day. So this is a guy with several Oxford and Cambridge PhDs. He's right at the front edge of his people. And that's one of the great things about Paul. He he doesn't do things half measure. So now, a word to the wise. Watch out for people who take shortcuts on their theological education because they're likely to lack integrity somewhere else. If this is worth doing, then it's worth doing well and you don't do it half measures, especially when you're doing it for Jesus. And yes, I might have a vested interest, but maybe not. I think it's really important. We'll come back to this uh, toward the end. That's why he leaves Tarsus, his home, to study in Jerusalem. Next thing about Paul is he knows his scriptures really, really well. If you've ever read Romans 9 through 11, we talked about this yesterday. It's like in every second verse he's quoting something. It's just he's stratospheric. You just stand back in wonder and watch him. And if you track those texts down, every one of them is a brilliant choice. I mean, this guy knows his stuff backwards. How well do you know the scriptures? I won't embarrass you by asking where your Bible is today. But how well do you know your scriptures? Folks, we did not invent this. It began with God saying, let there be. So this is not about our opinions. 
It's not about what we think is nice. I mean, with all due respect, I don't care what you think because you can't raise me from the dead. Thank you very much. Right? You're a nice person. I like your threads. But actually, when it comes to God, I don't care what you think. I want to know what Jesus has to say. I care about the word of God. And here's my question. Do you? How seriously do you take it? So you're a follower of Jesus. When was the last time you went to a Bible study? Actions speak louder than words, folks. If this really is about knowing God, then we should be just delving into this stuff with everything we're worth. And maybe it's a reflection on just what our relationship with Jesus is probably not like. You know what? I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on you. I'm trying to bring you to life. But you know, you can tell what matters to us by where we put our money and where we put our time. And you have to ask yourself, what what is it? Is it computer games? Is it playing golf? Is it learning about Jesus? Because that's the stuff that really, right? Okay. Now, I'm not saying you have to spend all your time doing that, but it does say something to us, I think, about where our values are. He knows his scriptures really well, and, thank you, uh, he's really a zealous Pharisee. The Pharisees are the guys you meet in the New Testament who have all these oral traditions that they then add to scripture. So that's Paul. Okay? In fact, in Galatians, he tells us that he's at the forefront of his generation. So he's right up there. He can say this himself. And there's no reason to doubt this. If you look at the New Testament and what Paul does, I said this yesterday, other people have said it too. If Paul hadn't become a Christian, you'd be reading about him in the front-ranked Jewish literature of the day. You'd be reading about him in the Mishnah and the Talmud. Rabbi Saul says... That's, what, that's the kind of guy this fellow is. And I think for all of these reasons, that's why he's a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, that's the highest supreme ruling body of Israel. So you got it? This guy is a player. One of the elite, best education, all the connections, the real deal Jew who knows both worlds. And on top of all of this, the thing that really gives him his edge is that he cares about the coming kingdom of God. Now, Christians didn't invent that. He's waiting for the coming kingdom. He knows Israel is in a mess. They haven't actually recovered from the exile. And not least because most of them, unlike him, don't keep the law. That's why he's a Pharisee. Now, by keeping the law, I don't mean sinless perfection. Just to get this one straight, the law has provision for the slip-up. It's called sacrifices. So Paul is not saying, I'm perfect in that sense. He says, God's made provision. If I make a slip-up, I deal with it. So God says this, and I'm doing it. It's all sealed. And that's his boast. His boast is God has told us what we need to do. I'm doing it. When God turns up, it's going to be, well done, buddy. That's what he's waiting for. He's utterly convinced that when the kingdom comes, God will say, Saul, you're my friend. That's what he's convinced of. Now, two things are central to this hope. The resurrection and the spirit. Isn't that interesting? We didn't invent the resurrection either. And Pentecostals did not invent the spirit. (laughs) The Jewish Paul who keeps Torah is waiting for these things. The promise of the resurrection from the dead and the promise of the spirit. So here he is, seriously well-placed guy, zealous, learned, deeply committed. 
He longs for Israel's future hope of resurrection and spirit. Right? And that's why he takes the law so seriously. He's just devoted to this. Now you can understand why Jesus is a problem for him. What's the first thing? Well, he has chapter and verse over this. Right? Deuteronomy 21 says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So here are these people running around worshipping Jesus and Paul can show you chapter and verse where he's under God's curse. That's blasphemy. The second thing, Jesus and the Pharisees are always at loggerheads and Paul's convinced that Jesus was leading Israel astray, taking them away from Torah obedience. And then the third thing, what that means is the longer Israel is disobedient, the longer the Lord will refrain from coming to them. You got that? So Paul is not persecuting Christians because he's just a nasty, ugly piece of work. He's doing it out of a deep devotion to Yahweh. He's got all the runs on the board. If anyone's committed, it's him. That's who this guy is. Now, what happens is if gangrene keeps spreading, they can't stop it. You know that you can't keep a good man down? (laughs) That's the thing about God. Kill us, we die. Kill him, he just keeps coming back. Because he's the author of life. That's one reason you want to know him. Okay? If you care about eternal life, you care about enjoying a restored creation, then Jesus is the guy you want to talk to. Right? So the Jewish leadership get together and they say, hang on, this, this stuff's now spreading to Syria, outside our territory where they speak Greek. Let me see now, who can we think of who's going to be able to lead the charge? Who knows the law backwards? Who can speak the language well? Who knows the culture? Who has family relationships? Gee, I wonder who we can think of. Someone among us. My goodness, who might that be? Exactly. Or Saul, because he's not Greek. He's in the Jewish setting. Well done you, okay? And so off he goes. And little does he know that he's about to have his life turned upside down. And not just his life, the entire world. Even Australia. (laughs) It's an astonishing moment. It's so important that the story is told three times in the book of Acts. Now, we're just going to kind of give a brief overview so you get this. Thank you. And the first thing that happens is light. Now, you're a Jewish person. Think like a Jew. Who alone dwells in light? Yahweh. Okay? Good. Now, just put yourself in Paul's sandals. Here you are with all of this stuff, right? You've got all the boxes ticked. You're on the way to defend God's honor and glory. And suddenly light appears around you. And this guy knows his scriptures, right? What do you think he thinks is about to happen? This is Yahweh appearing to him, right? And what's he going to get? He's going to get God's absolute confirmation, right? It's like Paul saying, at last you've noticed. Right? Think about it. From his point of view, he's got all the boxes ticked. When God turns up, that's what he's going to get. So he's probably, lay it on me, Lord, right? We know, you know, this is your destiny, made for this kind of stuff that we rattle on about sometimes. And what does he hear? Shael, Shael, Saul, Saul. He knows he, this is what God said to Samuel. He's got his you know, response all lined up. Speak, Lord, your servant hears, but he doesn't get a chance. Before the words even get out of his mouth, he hears, why do you persecute me? Put that together. Everything starts to go sideways. What? I'm not persecuting you. 
What are you talking about? I'm doing your work. I'm only persecuting those Christians. (laughs) And then you get the response. What's Paul's question? Who are you, Lord? It's the most important question you will ever ask in your life. It's the question that runs through all the Gospels. Who are you, Lord? Who is it you think that you've come to? Hmm? A kind of nice Jesus who runs hey, hey at Saturday? Sunday morning live? Who do you think you've come to? Some nice Jewish teacher? Who do you think this is you're worshipping? Lord. That's the Greek word for Yahweh, the God of all creation. That's who you've come to. That's who this is. This is not someone you put on the mantelpiece and take off every Sunday and polish it up and then do your own thing for the rest of the week. No, 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 you don't do that. This is the Lord of all creation. And the only right response in his presence is on our face in worship. That's the only right response. And when we come to worship, it's not about how we feel. It's about who he is. Got that? And that's an important thing, folks, because if we make it about how we feel, we put ourselves at the center. And good luck with that. Try and give yourself eternal life. It ain't going to happen, baby. We worship him because of who he is. Who he is. And, you know, one of the signs that where people get judged in Israel is when they don't welcome the presence of Yahweh. That's what we're doing in worship. You understand that? It's not about me. It's about recognizing him worshipping him because of who he is absolutely critical point now i don't you know it's just, I, I don't know how you express what a cataclysmic shock it must have been for paul just this jesus he's, he's just a galilean carpenter and he's been crucified right now i sometimes talk in non-christian environments and uh, and when i do that i have exactly the right expression but I can't use it here because you're all nice Christians, which is a bit of a pity. But this has got to be world's, one of the world's greatest oh smelly stuff moments. <laughs> like, Jesus is Yahweh among us. Think about that. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Do you know who this is? Sorry, getting a bit passionate about that. Do you know who he is? The Lord of all creation. Now, what does that mean? It means the resurrection has already happened, and that's what Paul's waiting for. But it's already happened in Jesus, okay? And he is on the wrong side of the equation. That huge towering edifice all that diligent righteousness, all those decades of devotion, all that sacrifice, that learning starts to take on an alarming aspect. The whole thing's about to come crashing down. Wow. And if that's not enough, he can't see. Now, he understands his scriptures. He knows Psalms 115, 135. The gods of the nations have eyes, but they can't see is but they can't hear 
That's idols. And so are all those who worship them. What do you think it says to Paul when his eyes are blinded? Do you see the implications? All that stuff he did, all that righteousness, simply led him to become what? God's idolatrous enemy. It's not because the law was bad. But now that Jesus has come, you don't fit Jesus into the Torah. Why? Because Jesus is the Yahweh who gave you the Torah and now he says, we're done with that. Now it's a matter of trusting me. That's what we do. And what is he experienced then? Mercy, not judgment, but mercy. Can I just say, don't ever forget this, folks. God's incredible mercy. We're always in need of that mercy. And this is how you can tell the difference between the legalists who pretend to be Christians and the real deal. The real litmus test is grace and peace. And if you're meeting people who claim to be Christians and they don't do grace and peace, they do not know Jesus. They might know legalism, but they don't know him and they certainly don't have the Holy Spirit. I know that's provocative, but that's Paul. That's why Paul can begin his letter to these guys who did wet work on the Roman frontier, frontier, grace and peace to you. Can you hear that? These people on Twitter who are getting their reputations torn apart because they don't look like the most beautiful girl in the world, God says to you, grace and peace. You guys who don't fit the Aussie kind of manly thing and bless you that you don't because it's a real problem, right? God says to you, grace and peace. And to the manly chickens among us, yeah, grace and peace to you too, right? Can you hear that? That's what this is about. Grace and peace because it's no longer about what you can do. And that's the curse of the law. The curse of the law is not that you can't do it. The curse is that you can. And that's what blinded Paul. He thought this is about doing and it's never about doing. Stop trying to please God. Stop trying to be that nice, good person because let me tell you, it's not working. Your friends will tell you. And it just smells. This is about grace and it's out of grace that transformation comes. Regulations, it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the works of Christian self-discipline. And there's a world of difference between those two things. Now, this grace leads to what? This mercy leads to Now he's going to take the gospel to the Gentiles and that's exactly what's going on in Philippians to these Roman soldiers. But it's not just that. He's also called to suffer. And folks, that's part of the deal. If you came to Jesus because there was going to be sweetness and light, forget it. You've come to a crucified Messiah. And that's the way we bring his life to the world. And that's what Paul says in Philippians 1.29 to these soldiers. God has graciously granted you not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for him. That's the deal. And then finally led blind and deaf, or at least blind to Jerusalem, a far cry from his, you know, leaving in triumph. Sorry, blind to Damascus. Next slide. And all he can do is fast and pray. He's done everything and this is all that's left. It's all he can do. It's incredible vulnerability and you won't get Paul unless you get that. He's not trying to impress anyone. You got that? He's over his ego. He's over all this stuff. He's done it, right? So I appreciate the professor thing, but no please, okay? And it's not for you, it's for my sake because I don't want to put tickets on myself. 
None of those things are going to raise me up at the last day. Only knowing Jesus, that's the only thing that matters. I want to know him and to be found in him. And all this other stuff is just stuff and nonsense if it doesn't lead me to him. I don't care about that, right? If you want life, there's just one person and that's Jesus. Do you love him? I mean, do you really love him? And that's not a guilt trip, that's an invitation to life. If you want life, he's the guy and I need to get cracking. Well, you can't help but wonder about poor old Ananias, right? Wandering along the street and he feels the spirit say, you need to go pray for Saul. Like, what? Get, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> I better watch the news by that in my hummus more carefully, just because that stuff's obviously... Right? And he goes off and he prays for Paul. Notice this, you never hear about him again. But without him, the world would never have changed. I want to say this to you. Don't make the mistake of thinking that people like me who get to preach publicly, we're the biggies in the kingdom. Don't ever make that mistake. Ananias, huge role in all of this. And in terms of worldly values, oh, just a bit part and he's gone, but from God's point of view, massive player in the history of the kingdom. Don't you ever diminish who you are because you're not up here. Right? Don't ever do that. The amazing thing God can do through just one act of obedience. It's a glorious thing. Well, two things happen. Paul's sight is restored and he gets the spirit being restored in God's image. Right? And that's what the law could never do. He kept the law and it never gave him spirit and it never gave him resurrection and it was never designed to. So whatever you do, folks, don't get caught up in telling Christians they have to keep Sabbath or they have to observe food laws. You be really careful about imposing Old Testament laws given to Israel upon the people of God because Paul will tell you in Galatians, if you do that, you cut yourself off from Jesus. We think we're being spiritual. What we're actually doing is denigrating what God had done in him. Because of him, we no longer do that. It's about trusting him. That brings us to our text and we're almost done. Thank you. Now you understand all this stuff. He can boast in all of this, but it never gave him the spirit. It never gave him entree into the resurrection life of the world to come. That's why he is a Jesus nut. Right? He's besotted with him. He doesn't care about philosophy. He doesn't care about all this other stuff. Just give me Jesus. In Christ alone, my hope is found. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. That's what marks us out. That's what makes the difference. And so he says in the next text, all these things that I have, I've come to regard as rubbish. He's got actually a fairly blunt word. It's like the scum around the rim of the toilet. But we're nice people, so I won't say it, even though I just have. <laughs> that I might gain him. Folks, for us, last slide. How do you feel about Jesus? And this is not guilt tripping. How's your Christian life going? Does it feel a bit kind of anemic? Feel like it's not really happening? There's one question you might want to ask. How do you give an inventory thing? There's an expression they use in Canada where you bet the farm. It's what people do when everything else is gone and that's all they've got left. They bet the farm. Have you bet the farm on Jesus? 
You have some parachutes around somewhere because you can't have those. Right? It's got to be entirely him, devoted to him. So I was just sitting here praying and uh, this morning and I'm not going to go where I was going to go. I, but what I do want to say is um, a long time ago I sat in a meeting at Richmond Temple and there was a guy speaking and he said, look, I, I don't want to be kind of selective here, but I want to talk to some of the young people whom God has gifted with a muscly brain. I want to talk to you and I ask, want to ask you, will you give that to Jesus? And I've forgotten about that for a long time. I was sitting down this morning and I... I want to say that. This is not for everybody. But I want to talk to some of you younger people whose life is still ahead of you. The church needs spirit-filled Bible teachers who will do the hard yards, who will learn their Greek, who will learn their Hebrew, who will immerse themselves in the Scriptures. The church needs that gift. And this is not to exclude anyone else. But I just want to say this morning, if that's you, then listen to see if the Holy Spirit's not calling you. And may, this might be the morning where you decide, you know what, that's for me. And I will do whatever it takes to work in the kingdom and see what that might result in. So I'm going to hand over to our manly chicken. <laughs> I'm not trying to spoil the moment. I'm just trying to be real about it. If that's you, and you feel that God's speaking to your heart, this might just be the moment that changes your life. It changed mine. Maybe that's what God's calling you to, to take care of His people by being a teacher, to open the Scriptures to them. And if that's you, tell the Holy Spirit yes. Say yes to Jesus. Could we stand? Let's close in prayer. Would you put your hands out in front of you this morning as if receiving something from God? Lord, so many things. Speak to us this morning, Lord, being culturally relevant to your society, to understand them, Lord, becoming all things to all men that they could be saved. Living passionately without Jesus. Right moral, right intent, but without Jesus at the center. We can miss opportunities. Lord, I thank you for the word and the challenge that it was today. Lord, let us be Jesus obsessed. Let us be passionate for your word. Lord, let us be willing to do whatever it takes to attain knowledge and understanding and perseverance to walk it out. Lord, I pray for those young minds this morning. 
those that will speak in this house, speak in universities, be a light in an educated academic world for you. But Lord, in every sphere of life that you have placed the people in our community in, Lord, help us to be Jesus-obsessed and apply that to our world and our context, Lord. Lord, I have such a desire to know you more. And I have such a passion to go after it. Right now, if you're in this place and you, like me, have been challenged this morning to to seek greater understanding of God and grow deeper in a relationship with Jesus, would you raise your hands up high? So in the raising of your hands, this is what I say in closing. What are you going to do about it? What can you enroll in? What can you begin to study? What can you seek out? We are blessed to live in a society that can provide opportunities such as Bible college, classes online, what we provide here. Help us, Lord, to actively go after you. I want to know you more. I want to understand you better. I want to be able to hear your voice more clearly. An invitation. As Rick said this morning about Jesus is an invitation to life. We want to know you more. And right now in this place, Lord, with the accountability of our community, We strive and we go after you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to encourage you this morning this. I've been married now. Hear what I'm saying in context. I believe in being educated. I've been married for 12 years this year, post, got married at 19. And in that 12 years of marriage, I've had two years off study. Because every time I continue to gain knowledge and understanding, it helps me to grow closer to Jesus. But it takes a step at a time. So this is, this is my challenge. We have Discipleship 101 coming in our community. Is that something you've done before? Is it something you haven't done before? You could start there. We have our internships programs at this church. That's a certificate for at Alpha Crucius. There are online courses. I want to encourage you. Seek out Pastor Greg. Come and see myself. Do something with it. Maybe there's a study that you can do with your connect group. We have resources available to help us grow closer to Jesus. Let's not be as our culture seems to be heading towards biblical illiteracy, let's know God more and let's know His Word more.